This is Lilac Wine, the podcast. We are about to begin chapter 14 of this historical novel in progress. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please do. Don't want you to miss anything. On the last episode, Billy and Robert go aboard the SS Sydney, a steamer on the upper Mississippi, and they listen to the fine jazz of Fate Marable. If you haven't listened to that chapter, go back before listening to this one. Also, please be aware, this episode uses some homophobic slurs. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, lilac wine. Chapter 14 The upper deck of the steamer was known as the hurricane deck, due to the fact that it was completely open to the elements. Those looking for respite from the heat of the dancing found it near the stern, where mist from the paddle wheel provided some relief. Couples liked to linger up there in the darkness. Watchmen walked back and forth, trying to prevent the occasional attempt by some to unscrew light bulbs to make the deck even darker. Part of their job was to make sure that amorous couples did not get too carried away in the shadows. It was a dark evening with only a sliver of moon hanging in the sky. At times it was difficult to discern where the land and water ended and the sky began. Lonely lights from isolated farmhouses, almost indistinguishable from the stars in the sky, spotted the landscape. It was so dark on the river, Robert wondered how the captain could even maneuver such a large vessel without running aground or hitting a fallen tree. Robert swallowed the last swig of beer from his bottle and then tossed it overboard. He listened for the splash, but the music and paddle wheel muffled most of the sounds from the river. He could feel the music resonating through the floor. After giving Robert a tour of the boat, Billy brought them again to the ballroom, drinking beer and listening to the sounds of the orchestra. The music was infectious. And when the band was truly playing what they loved, the audience, too, could feel it. At those times, the temperature in the ballroom got noticeably hotter as more bodies poured into the room. He and Billy watched people dance as they sat on a couple of the chairs that lined the perimeter of the floor. You should ask one of those pretty girls over there for a dance, Robert said to Billy. Just tell him it's your birthday. No, thanks. How about you? Robert shook his head and took a sip of beer. He wasn't much of a dancer. The last time he danced was more than four years ago at a school-sponsored event. Even then, he wasn't very good. So he was just content to sit and listen to the band, unlike many of the others in the ballroom. Some longed for someone to offer them a dance, while many others sat, trying to wrangle the courage to make that offer, looking with envy upon those who had made it to the floor. For much of them, the waiting was in vain, yet the ritual would be repeated over and over again on excursions yet to come. 
he was sitting in the perimeter of loneliness, Robert realized. He sat among people who wanted nothing more than to enter the center sanctum of that circle, thinking that there everything would be different. But Robert knew otherwise, or so he thought. The Sydney spent an hour docked at Cassville, Wisconsin. There, the excursionists walked along the Mississippi at Riverside Park or sampled food from vendors at the base of Frederick Street. Robert and Billy bought a couple of sausages and sat on the dock. Soon the calliope sounded, calling the people back to the boat. The sound reminded Robert of the circus. The last time he went was many years ago and was one of the last times he had together with both his mother and father. His father died less than a month later. Suddenly he was feeling a bit homesick, homesick for something that he knew could never again exist. Once on board, the last thing that Robert wanted to do was to watch people dance. Feeling a bit melancholic, he realized that the beer was probably not helping the situation. But he wasn't about to give up that, considering that once back on the Iowa side of the river, his chances for quenching that thirst would practically be none. Plus, it was Billy's birthday, and he didn't want to bring him down. Since they could still hear the music up on the hurricane deck, Billy wholeheartedly agreed to spend the last half of the excursion up there, taking in the sights and sounds of the river while drinking as much beer as they could. Thanks for making this a great birthday, said Billy. I should be thanking you, Billy. This is wonderful. I think I could stay up here all night. We're lucky there's a breeze. Otherwise, the mosquitoes can be unbearable. Billy finished his beer, tossing the bottle over the side. Let me get another round, said Robert. He stood, slightly light-headed as he made his way down to the bar. The orchestra just finished a number and the patrons applauded loudly. Robert ordered two more bottles of Potosi. The band began playing again. Grabbing the bottles in one hand, he turned towards the staircase. Suddenly, someone grabbed his upper arm rather tightly, causing him to spill some beer on the floor. You ain't from around here, are you? Robert abruptly turned, wrestling his arm from the grip. A young man not much older than him stood menacingly close. Robert smelled what he thought was whiskey on his breath. His eyes were piercing, even under the brim of his hat. Your kind ain't welcome here, he said through clenched teeth. I don't know what you're talking about, Robert replied. The man leaned forward. Tell your friend he'd better be careful. He said the word friend with a sneer. I think you've mistaken me for someone else. Robert turned his back on the man and began walking up the stairs. He could feel his heart in his chest. Stopping near the top, he turned to look down at the floor. The man was gone. Robert was not one to go out looking for fights, yet at the same time, he was not above defending himself or his friends. The saloons in Chicago were notoriously rough, and Robert had witnessed his fair share of scuffles. Recently, he punched a man at Conrad's who spoke disparagingly of the German owner. It seemed to him that the war brought out the worst in people. It legitimized violence. Even so, the last thing he wanted was to get in a fight on a steamboat floating down the Mississippi River. There wasn't a dark alley to duck into if things went bad. Back on the hurricane deck, Robert saw that Billy had just finished speaking with Martin. The watchman tipped his hat to Robert as the two passed. 
Hope you enjoyed yourself, sir, he said. Robert handed his friend a bottle of beer. Thanks, Billy replied. We'll have to finish these quickly. Martin just told me that we'll be getting to the dock in about 20 minutes or so. Robert peered out into the darkness beyond the railing. It seemed that the boat was now beginning to move more to the other side as it steered south. He looked down to the bow and saw a man swinging the landing stage to the port side of the boat, making room, no doubt, for a nice running leap. Are we really going to jump again? Robert asked. Billy chuckled. <laughs> yes, but Martin told me since we're jumping to the dock, the captain would slow the boat down more and try to get a bit closer. That's good. Robert looked down to the water. It glistened with the reflections of the electric lights that lined each of the decks. He lost count of how many beers he drank that evening. One thing was for sure, that jump was going to be interesting. Hey, Billy, Robert said. He turned and leaned his back against the railing. You know anyone on the boat? The question caught Billy by surprise as he was swallowing. He shook his head and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. No. Why? Robert didn't want to make a big deal about it. It was probably just a misunderstanding fueled by alcohol. Nothing. Downstairs, I was mistaken for, look, Billy pointed out over the river, changing the subject. There's the dock. Robert looked and could see several lights flickering in the night. Billy laughed. I'm glad those are still burning. I had my doubts. The two stood for a moment, watching the torches get larger as the boat approached. They both finished their bottles and together threw them into the river. Although the boat had a policy about tossing anything over the side, everyone did it, and the watchman did not do much to stop the practice. While clamming, Billy often found himself maneuvering his john boat through clusters of floating bottles. This was true, especially on days following excursions. Let's go said Billy. He turned in the direction of the bow and suddenly stopped. On second thought, let's go this way. He spun around and walked quickly in the opposite direction towards the stern. He didn't even wait for Robert. Wait, why are you going that way? called Robert. And then he saw him. It was the man from downstairs walking briskly in their direction. His hands were clenched into fists, a seriously determined look on his face. Robert took a step forward and held out his arms. Before he could say anything, the man gave him a quick shove, which Robert half expected. Although he braced himself, the push was surprisingly strong, and he would have lost his footing if it were not for the deck chair at his feet, which helped prop up his beer-impaired legs. Robert gathered himself and leaped forward, grabbing the man's upper arm with his left hand. The man spun around and jerked his arm in a backhanded slap. Robert ducked and planted a fist into his stomach. The man doubled over, his hands clenching his abdomen, clearly not having expected the punch. Robert then grabbed the man's head in both hands and plunged his knees upward into his face. There was a loud grunt as the blow wrenched him backward, feet flying from under his body, head smacking the deck railing. He groaned on the floor, turning on his side. Blood flowed freely from his nose. Robert turned and ran down the deck, passing gawking spectators who quickly got out of his way. He paused at the stairway near the stern, uncertain where Billy was. The stairway was empty, and he was about to descend when he heard Billy's voice. It came from a dark corner of the hurricane deck. I don't know what you're talking about, Billy pleaded. Listen here, you little faggot, said a voice. I never forget a face. 
Are you saying you don't remember me? No, please. Billy was on the verge of tears. Robert peeked his head around the corner. Several of the light bulbs were out, but Robert could see three figures in the darkness. A man cloaked in shadows was holding Billy from behind while another stood in front of him, his back to Robert. I told you what would happen if I ever saw your face again. You remember that, don't you? The man holding Billy tightened his grip. Billy arched his back and turned his face to the sky. In the light of the single bulb that burned above them, Robert could see the glistening trails that ran down Billy's cheeks. He was unsure what to do. He looked back down the length of the hurricane deck. A watchman was helping the other man to his feet. People were pointing in his direction. Robert realized that if he was going to act, he needed to do it immediately. Robert stepped from around the corner and cleared his throat. Excuse me, he said, but this doesn't look like a fair fight. The man in front of Billy spun, his hands clenched into fists. He had a thin mustache and a small, pursed mouth. His eyes, which seemed small and beady in the darkness, scanned the area nervously. If you're looking for your friend, said Robert as calmly as he could, they're now peeling him off the floor several yards back. The man swallowed. Coming to rescue your damsel, huh? Robert didn't say anything. His opponent was about the same age and height. Hopefully, thought Robert, he too was a little drunk. He brought up his fists. He and Nancy stick together, don't you? The man taunted. And with that, Robert lunged forward. The darkness and the loud whooshing of the paddle wheel made the situation rather disorienting, and Robert stumbled, losing his balance. His first punch was easily deflected, and as he turned, a punch landed square in the face. He blindly flailed his arms, one fist making soft contact. He took a step back and faced his adversary. The hat that was once on the man's head was now off, and tufts of dark, disheveled hair hung in his face. He was smiling. Is that the best you can do? He said. Robert swung with his left, the punch again deflected, but this time he was ready and was able to land the other fist into the man's unprotected stomach. The blow caused him to curl forward and Robert brought his other clenched fist down onto the back of his neck. That brought the man to his knees in pain. Robert then turned toward Billy, who was flailing wildly in the grasp of the other, his back against the railing. The man had Billy's throat clasped tightly in his grip. Robert landed a punch to the kidney and another. Letting go of Billy, the man turned and swung at Robert, striking him right in the eye. Robert staggered backwards. That's not going to look good tomorrow, he thought. Seeing that Billy was now free, Robert yelled, Run! Billy took off, turning the corner, no doubt making his way down the staircase. Robert was about to follow when suddenly a hand grasped his foot. He lost his balance and plunged face first into the hard wood of the deck floor. You son of a bitch! screamed the man with the mustache. He was on his knees, his fingernails digging into the flesh of Robert's ankle. Robert turned onto his back and planted his free foot into the man's face, crushing his nose. He struggled to his feet when a sharp pain pierced his ribcage as the other man slammed a foot into his side. He tried to pull himself up using the deck rails when he was grabbed by the fabric of his jacket and thrown to the floor. Robert fell on his back, his side throbbing in pain. He could barely see, his right eye swollen shut. The stars in the sky were blurry, and the single light on the upper deck burned with a large, fuzzy halo. He tried to lift his upper body, but was pushed back down with a foot. It suddenly became darker as the man who had held Billy eclipsed the light bulb, a mere silhouette in the darkness. His head was round, 
and he was sweating, the drops falling onto Robert like rain. He smiled, the white of his teeth the only distinguishing feature that could be seen in the darkness. His breath was loud and heavy. Now, I'm going to kill you, he said. Robert swallowed and feebly raised his arms to at least try to protect his head. He closed his eyes, took a deep breath. <whistles> Loud whistles suddenly overcame the ringing in his ears as several watchmen emerged on the scene, each armed with nightsticks. There was a loud thud followed by a grunt. A swinging club had clipped the round-headed man on the shoulder and he was brought to the floor in a tackle. As Robert rolled to the side, he was lifted up and thrown against the deck rails. He didn't resist. He slung his arms over the railing for support and looked out into the darkness of the evening. Trying to focus, he blinked his eye several times to clear away the excess tears. And then he realized where the boat was. Ah, shit, he muttered. The Sydney was nearly to the dock, and Billy was nowhere in sight. I want to thank everyone for their commitment to this podcast. We are 14 chapters in, and we have over 530 downloads to this point. So that's good. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast, please let your friends know. Uh, I believe that it's beginning to pick up here. Uh, recently, I was reading... Uh, one of my favorite authors, and that author is Ray Bradbury. And one of my favorite books of his is Dandelion Wine. It is really one of the favorite. I read it, I try to read it every summer or so. And that book is kind of a collection of vignettes that take place in a small town around the time of Lilac Wine, actually, in Illinois. And so uh, I think kind of the structure of this book is somewhat like that. A bunch of vignettes that kind of piece together the story of two people who meet in this small town. But these last two chapters have a continuous arc. And it's Billy and it's Robert going on the SS Sydney from the Streckfist steamer line. The SS Sydney was a famous riverboat. I talked a little bit about it after the last episode, especially in regard to Fate Marable. Fate Marable is one of the most underrated musicians in early jazz. He is credited with bringing Louis Armstrong into the riverboat scene and many others. He only made one album in 1924. And in that chapter, at the beginning, we hear music underneath the sound of the paddle wheel. That is from 1924, actually. It's one of Fate Marable's songs. He only recorded one album. So a lot of what Fate Marable had done is lost 
to history, which is unfortunate. The riverboat culture was a big deal. By 1917, riverboats weren't necessarily being used to transport you know, people and things up and down the Mississippi. They were excursion boats. They were you know, hired out for people to have fun. And jazz is, <laughs> jazz is fun. And so jazz bands got their start on the riverboats. And these moonlight cruises were a big deal. And the Strikefist steamer line would run several of these moonlight cruises from some of their ports, whether it be St. Louis or down in New Orleans or Dubuque. And Fate Marable was on them. So I wanted to put Billy and Robert on one of these boats. And I also wanted something to happen. There hasn't been a whole lot happening in the novel. We're meeting characters. And I just really like telling the stories of characters. And so we have a lot of that. But this is really kind of truly the first real action that we have in the novel when, you know, Robert is confronted by somebody. There are these slurs that are directed towards Billy and to a lesser extent, Robert as well. And they're homophobic slurs. And what I, I, I needed to do when researching the novel is to make sure that the slurs that I use are slurs that would have been used at the time. And of course, the F word, as it's often called today, um, I talk about it in my classes with students. I teach social science and I do a whole thing about race and ethnicity. I do a whole thing about racism and I do a whole thing about the history of slurs. And the word faggot has been around for a long, long time. And everyone knows what it means. I ask kids and they're like, it means bundle of sticks. And it does. And its origins are in the Middle Ages. And its origins are also pretty dark because in the Middle Ages, when the church was in charge of everything, a person who spoke out or was seen as different was often tried as a heretic. And this was particularly true for women, women who didn't conform to the standard. Think Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc burned at the stake. She was called a heretic. And heretics, when they were convicted, were given another name. And that name was faggot because the execution method for heretics was burning. So they literally became bundles of sticks. So this was applied to women. Women were persecuted by the church during the Middle Ages quite a bit. And also other people who didn't fit, you know, the limited worldview that people in the Middle Ages had. So homosexuals were as well called faggots and burned at the stake. Now, in the United States, the first recorded use of that word as a pejorative was in 1914. So it was in a book about criminal slang that was published in that year, which meant that the word was used earlier than 1914. So I was confident that it would have been a word used in 1917. And there were other words used at the time too, like sissy, Nancy, which you heard in that chapter. 
as well. And so we're getting a little bit more information here about Billy. Billy's very, very guarded. And uh, I'm. it was at this time when I was writing it that I was truly getting into Billy's character. I didn't necessarily see Billy as a major character. And it's at this time that he becomes one. Because in the next chapter, in the next chapter, we get for the first time a point of view that is not Abelia and not Robert. It'll be the first time that we get the perspective of Billy. And it'll happen several times as we go. These three people now are going to be the most important characters, and they're going to move the narrative. Uh, and that narrative is going to uh, take us places that I didn't know we were going to go when I first started this novel a long time ago. And that's one of the, you know, the beauties of writing is that your, your story and your people that you create kind of drive the narrative. And that's what I love so much about it. So we are back on the boat next chapter as well. So this is the longest arc that we've had so far in the story. And next time it's about Billy and we get a little bit more about those people who accosted him on the SS Sydney. So stay tuned. We'll be doing that next week. And if you get a chance, if you if you are liking this, I would, uh, gosh, I would love it if you could go to iTunes and write a review. That would be great. Or just, you know, put some stars down if you could. I am uh, in the process of making shirts. So I'm going to do some contests coming up. So you may get a shirt in that process. I'm going to be putting up a mailing list up at lilacwinenovel.com. So join the mailing list and get some information about the novel, about the podcast, and um, about you know what we are doing here. And I couldn't do it without you. So thanks again for you know bringing us to 530 downloads here's to 530 more i appreciate it thanks for listening i am bruce janu and i'll see you next week This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion 
Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>